geht's gut, ich bin froh und ich sag dir auch wieso, weil du mich gut verstehst. Hello, and welcome to the Panzer Podcast. My name is John Burgess, and I will be your host as we take a deep dive into all things tanks. Today, we are going to hopefully, and I say hopefully, because just like last episode, once I started writing this one, it sort of, hmm, got away from me, and we ended up hitting that one hour mark a lot sooner than I thought we would. We are going to continue our discussion about the Panther tank. This time, moving on to the production of the Panther Aufstie, the modifications, and the refit just prior to the Battle of Curse, which kicked off in July of 1943. It may seem a bit ambitious, but if there is time, we will get into the operational aspect of the Panther D, as well as the background and opening days of Operation Zitadel. So without further ado, let's dive in. In 6, or Inspection des Kraftsverwiesens, oof, that was bad, Inspection of Vehicle Affairs, ordered 1,000 Panther aus D initially, beginning in January of 1943, with contracts for production having been awarded to the firms Mann, obviously, Daimler-Benz, MNH, and Henschel. According to documents referenced in Germany's Panther tank, The Quest for Combat Supremacy, by Thomas Jenst, Mann, Daimler-Benz, and MNH assembled both chassis and turret, while Henschel only assembled the chassis. Turrets were assembled by Wegmann in Kassel and delivered to Henschel for mounting. The order of a thousand was quickly reduced to 850, due in part to how incredibly confident, albeit unrealistic, that initial order was. There was no way in hell they would have 1,000 tanks produced in time for the upcoming offensive that Hitler expected the Panthers to partake in. The actual production number was more like 842 produced by the end of September 1943, with 12 of the chassis being used as Berger Panther, or Recovery Panther, in June of 1943. Berger, a German word that literally translates to mountains, but in this context is a slight variation of the word Bergen, which actually means to recover. So a Berger Panther really is just a recovery panther. Which again, the Panther tank weighed 45 and a half tons. Uh, the Wehrmacht did not have a huge surplus of the SDKFZ-9, or the FAMO as it was known, which was a 18-ton heavy prime mover used as a recover vehicle for the Panther. In Lucas Friedel's book, Repairing the Panzers, Volume 2, he states that you needed two, and more often than not, three of these FAMO heavy prime movers to actually tow a disabled Panther tank. In the Panther Feeble, or Panther Manual, issued to the troops, it stated that it was verboten, that is to say forbidden, to use your Panther to hook up to a disabled Panther in any sort of attempt to recover it. This was because the weak final drive was obviously known to the higher-ups, and it was understood that it was better to leave one disabled panther on the battlefield than risk having two get stuck. Again, the ratio of Berga panther to panthers would never be adequate enough, and just by looking at the numbers, 830 panthers to 12 Berga panthers was not exactly the ratio one was looking for. I will devote some time to the repairing of the Panther on and off the battlefield, as well as the specialty variants like the Berger Panther, but that will have to wait till next episode. 
Remember those teething problems I've been teasing for two episodes now? Well, I haven't forgotten about them either, and now seems just as good as any of a time to get into them. We're going to rewind the tape here just a little bit and talk about the first three series-produced Panther Ds. They were delivered to Grafenvorm on January 28th through the 30th of 1943. Vaproof 6 was present, as was Reichsminister Albert Speer and his entourage of engineers and officers ready to see how their new Panther Aus D would measure up to their scruples. Immediately, a problem was identified with the turret, and I don't know if I find this so much humorous as I do amusing, that you've got this massive 45.5 ton tank with all these complicated and intricate systems and subsystems, drawings and blueprints, only to find out, after you've attached the turret to the hull and gotten them off of the train at Grafenvorm, only to realize that the corners of the turret hit the closed driver and radio operator's hatch covers. No, I'm not kidding. About three centimeters would need to be removed from the right and left corners of the turret to keep the driver and radio operator's hatch from being hit or blocked by the turret, which would make it quite difficult for both the driver and radio operator to enter and exit the vehicle. Another issue that arose with the turret, and this mostly had to do with the clutch in the turret traverse mechanism, that the gear teeth would mm, slip and be unable to traverse the turret properly. Not to mention that if the Panther was on a 10 degree slope or greater incline, the gunner could not traverse the turret by himself as it was now stuck due to the immense weight of the turret on the slope. The top of the hull was also uneven, so uneven in fact, that each individual turret needed to be fitted by trimming the ball bearing race or by installing an additional spacer ring. Again, all of this work is being done by hand. The variation in fabrication techniques and tooling machines resulted in wildly different clearances, many of which were completely outside of the specifications and would need to be fixed. Another, maybe, oversight, uh, or issue, <laughs> was that the gun sight inside the turret hit its mounting bracket, resulting in the gun only being able to depress negative 7.5 degrees and only being able to elevate 17.5 degrees which is a loss of one degree in total, which is a big deal when using the tank in a hull-down or otherwise protected firing position. This was due in a large part because the recoil guard would smash into the commander's seat, creating this unfortunate situation of being unable to elevate the gun properly. Whoops. Speaking of the recoil guard, an additional plate had to be installed to keep the breech from recoiling directly into the commander's knee. Ouch. And by ouch, I mean, oh my god, my knee has been crushed and my leg probably severed. Another fix was also essential to protect his arm from the recoiling gun by way of an additional plate welded onto the recoil guard. Again, to prevent his arm from being smashed or ripped off of him. Not fun. Within the turret itself, there were a few other, shall we say, quality of life improvements that needed to be made, such as moving the spare gun sight parts box which was attached to the turret inside wall, but it was too close to the emergency escape hatch and thus impeded egress of the turret crew. Quite the problem when trying to get out of a possibly burning tank in an emergency. A month later, on February 22, 1943, Director Rathier from Mann recorded an account of the Panther demonstration that was conducted for Albert Speer at Grafenvoer. Quote, Reichsminister Speer arrived shortly after 11, 
He greeted the troops assembled for the demonstration, as well as the representatives from Man. Twelve Panthers, all outfitted with clutch brake steering, were assembled. After a ride in one of these Panthers, Speer remarked that the steering was somewhat hard. Evidently, the brakes engaged too abruptly. Three Panthers fired at stationary and towed targets. At the finish, Speer requested that another designer from Man and myself sit in the commander's position in one of the firing Panthers. I was hereby convinced that the turret ventilation was deficient and that only several rounds could be fired with the hatches closed. I promised to pass on this deficiency to the responsible company, Ryan Mittal. He goes on after the closing speech by General Lieutenant Eberbach. Eberbach asked Speer to listen to the remarks from the troops and requested that I also take part in this meeting. The engineer from Panzer Abteilung 51 related the following problems. Motor fires, fuel pump failure, problems with the transmission, final drives breaking, drive sprockets inadequately secured, oil viscosity gauge, operating the ventilation flap from the driver's position, and several other points such as cable-linked controls gas pedal linkage, special tools, etc., end quote. During this demonstration, Panzer Eibtelung 51 also reported on the 13 Panthers that had taken part in the demonstration for Speer. Only six of the Panthers broke down and had to be withdrawn for repairs. Of those needing repairs, four were assembled by Mann, one by Daimler-Benz, and one by M&H. During production, as with all German panzers during production, modifications were made to correct any issues or teething problems, there's that word again, that may have come up during trials and or combat. Most modifications fell into one of a few categories. Improved performance, increased firepower, increased armor protection, simplified design or ease of manufacture, and finally, shortages. This last one ramps up the further along the war we go. The Panther Aus D was no exception. Now, what sort of things are simply modifications versus an entirely new design? Remember, the Panther will ultimately have five different Ausführung or models. Granted, two of them, the Aus F and Panther II, would never really see the battlefield. The answer itself is kind of uh, difficult to pinpoint to a precise reason, but realistically, it usually meant that a big enough change was happening, and so a new drawing number was created by the engineering firms. Again, the Osferung identification was really only for the engineering firms, and you know maybe for us nerds after the fact. The army itself didn't really care. They just needed tanks, and they needed tanks that worked. So the modifications introduced to the Panther Aus D, um, not all modifications were additions. Sometimes, and oftentimes, they were deletions as well. So what I'd like to do is go through the modifications chronologically, starting from the first time that the modification appeared, and letting you know when it ended. So from January to June of 1943, the smoke candle dischargers were produced and then deleted after June. The reason for this, during a reported training action in February of 1943, small arms fire had set off the smoke candles, resulting in the temporary incapacitation of the crew, the crews noting that this would be a vulnerability in combat. Now, you can actually tell when you're looking at a Panther D, one of the, at least you can know it was an early Panther D, because they still have these candle dischargers, 
which looked like little tiny mortars on the turret roof on the left and right-hand side. These would be deleted, ultimately. However, even in Kursk, during July of 1943, you will see plenty of Panther tanks that still have these smoke candle dischargers. Oftentimes, though, they would be empty because the crews knew better than to leave them there to get shot at. From January to July of 1943, the communications port on the left turret side. The Verstandigung Ausnung, or communications port, was deleted from the turret side for ease of production and to reduce a small vulnerability in the turret itself. From January through September of 1943, there were face-hardened glacis plates. Noting that the Panther armor might be insufficient, plans for the Panther II were drawn up with thicker armor in all aspects. Face hardening was deleted for ease of production, as it was thought the Panther II would supersede production of the current Panther model. Due to backstock of heat-treated plants, the first appearance of non-face-hardened Panthers would not show up until August or September of 1943. From February 1943 through to September of 1944, Dunkelgelb RAL 7028 base paint. The base paint changed from Dunkelgrau, dark gray or panzer gray, as I like to refer to it, to Dunkelgelb, dark yellow or panzer yellow. Units in the field would use olive grun, olive green, and rotbraun, or red-brown, to create a wide variety of camo patterns. This would take place by the maintenance sections after the new Panthers arrived at their unit. From March 1943 through to the end of the war, the single-radius steering gear was implemented. We spoke about this last episode, and even earlier in this episode. Essentially, the first 60 Panthers were fitted with the clutch and brake systems, which were... mm, garbage, and thus the marginally less shitty single-radius steering mechanism was implemented throughout the war. From April 1943 through to the end of the war, the Schürzen, or protective skirts, were added. Noting the amount of Soviet anti-tank rifles present on the battlefield, firing a 14.5mm, or 57 caliber, armor-piercing round, the 40mm thick lower hull side armor could be penetrated at a close range. A stopgap measure taken, since welding additional plates was out of the question and proved difficult in trials due to the face hardening, the engineers could no longer weld anything directly onto the sides. The solution was to mount shirtsen, or protective skirts, made from a mild steel, which proved effective against the AT rifles as well as 75mm high-explosive shells. The shirtsen, however, were not intended to defeat nor were they tested against hollow charge rounds. From April through September of 1943, the commander's cupola was reoriented. The hatch of the commander's cupola required a wheel to operate, that is, to open the hatch. This wheel was initially located in an odd spot and so was moved from behind him to his left, allowing much easier operation of the hatch. Eventually, a new cupola would be designed, but that won't be until later on a different version of the Panther. From April 1943 through to the end of the war, as we noted earlier with Albert Speer, the Boer evacuator was mm, not great. So they installed a new, and please excuse me, Rohrausblasvorrichtung, or Boer evacuator with compressor, was installed. 
The initial evacuator was insufficient, allowing gases to enter the fighting compartment, incapacitating the crew through burning on the respiratory system and eyes, which are obviously very important for panzer crews. From April of 1943 onward, a rain channel was welded over the escape hatch and communication ports. This was a comfort thing, mostly. Without these rain channels or gutters, during a storm, water would get inside of the panther, creating issues for the crew, as well as a possibility of damaging internal components not exactly meant to get wet or exposed to the elements. From May of 1943 on, the new Maybach HL230P30 motor was installed. This was the new and improved Maybach engine, which we discussed last episode. It was now installed and ready to go through the end of the war. From June through August of 1943, there was an armor pot covering for the snorkel tubes. When stowed, these snorkel tubes were covered by an armored hatch to protect them from being damaged in combat. From June through July of 1943, 16-bolt road wheels reinforced with 16 rivets were installed. This was done primarily to reinforce the road wheels further, ultimately being replaced by a new and much more reinforced design from the get-go. July 1943 through June of 1944, a single headlight was mounted on the Glacius. Instead of two, just one of these Bosch, and yes, that Bosch, headlights was installed. This was an ease of manufacture and cost savings implementation. From August 1943 through January of 1945, a ring for anti-aircraft machine gun was mounted on the cupola. This allowed for the mounting of an MG-34 for the commander to use in anti-aircraft roles, or if necessary, close quarters combat, though not a great idea since the commander's torso would be exposed while firing, possibly exposing him to enemy small arms fire. From August 1943 through September of 1944, a rain channel or gutter over the sight apertures in the gun mantlet. This was done, again, I don't know, I don't want to say quality of life, but it would keep the gun sights from getting wet and becoming unusable from like water droplets on a lens kind of thing. So it was just, again, just little, little things to make the Panther that much more effective. From August of 43 through the end of the war, the road wheels, again, reinforced now with 24 rim bolts. This, again, was just to replace the 16-bolted road wheels, as we mentioned before. August of 1943 through July of 1944, rain guards for air inlet and fuel filter. More rain guards to keep the water out of areas where water shouldn't be. From September of 1943 through the end of September of 1944, the Zimmeret anti-magnetic coating was applied. Zimmeret, an anti-magnetic coating, was literally painted on the panther and using a sort of waffle pattern was set into the paste. Um, if you've ever seen a picture of the panther and it looks like it's textured, like it looks like it's almost like a, I don't know if oil paint is the wrong thing, or maybe acrylic, but it's got a waffle pattern. It's kind of you know criss crisscrossed and hatched. That's Zimmeret. Uh, it was used as a protection against magnetic binds, which the Germans used to stick onto tanks, and after a few seconds, the mine would blow up and usually punch a hole into or otherwise disable an enemy tank. The problem was the Soviets didn't use magnetic mines like that, nor did the Western Allies, so the Zimmeret was there to protect from mines that only the Germans used. Fun, right? Finally, in September of 1943, through to the end of the war, 
six chevrons on each track link face were added. So this was done in an effort to increase the traction of the tracks. Think of them as the bottom of your shoe, the tracks anyway. Whatever sort of pattern is there is generally for grip or traction. Tank tracks are basically the same. A stronger pattern allowed for more surface area to grab and thus more traction. They act like cleats in a way, digging in for more surface area, more traction, and thus more maneuverability. By March of 1943, over 45 corrections, changes, and modifications were identified by Voiproof 6. As we have just previously discussed, most, if not all of these, were deemed necessary before any large number of Panther tanks could be sent to the front to effect any meaningful change in the momentum on the battlefield. We need to remember, however, that by March of 1943, about 90 Panther Ds have already been built, most of which were lousy with issues that needed to be remedied. What was the armaments industry to do? It was decided that starting in April of 1943, the four assembly firms were to deliver their completed Panthers to DMAG in Falconsea, where a depot would receive the Panthers and begin the rebuild and modification process required to bring the Panther Ds up to their proper specifications. So we're going to talk about some of the modifications that were made in Falcon C, uh, and we're going to start with the motor compartment. Without getting too into the weeds and having me describe all of the minutiae, like drill ventilation holes in the field tanks, or replace three position fuel valves with new valve manifold, suffice to say, the modifications done to the motor compartment were in a large part to reduce overheating, helping to mitigate engine fires, and accommodate the submersible equipment. Regarding the submersible equipment, there were several modifications for the telescoping pipes, which were done that made submersion impossible. Noting that the equipment for submersion was not available and thus deemed unnecessary for the upcoming offensive. The steering gear was also improved. Uh, they've they kind of improved on the lubrication of the bearings for the planetary gears by machining oil catch rims and holes. Again, these are little modifications done by hand to each individual panther. So it kind of gets a little tedious when you think about it. Uh, in regards to the final drives, they installed new planetary gear and double gears with 12 teeth. This was an attempt to strengthen, you know, strengthen the overall final drive, which included strengthening the fastening drive sprockets. While, while, while these attempts were made to strengthen the final drive, as discussed earlier, the type of metal used did not improve. So all these modifications to try and strengthen this and strengthen that, they only helped to prolong the life of the drive. It never truly remedied the ultimate issue of just failures. The Argus brake system was strengthened so that the brake housing could better suit the needs of the tank. The suspension system also had some issues. They needed to replace torsion bars and dampeners and shock absorbers. Quite a few of these were just straight up defective right off of the production line and needed to be replaced. For transmissions, ZF or Zahnrad Fabrik Fujikshafen was available on site to rebuild any transmissions or fix any issues that may have come up during training. The turret was also not free of modifications. As we had discussed earlier, the commander's cupola needed to have the hatch wheel relocated. They also installed a mount for the TSR-1 SESTAB, or Observation Periscope, which would allow the commander to have a better view of the battlefield while staying within the tank. It is also noted that this periscope was not available to all Panthers prior to Operation Zitadel. 
the main gun had a couple issues. They had to improve the recoil guards further and also, like we discussed, get the bore evacuator up and running. They also installed a backup firing device in case the main electrical system failed. In regards to the gun sight, they needed to reinforce the sight mount as it would get knocked around during combat and movement. They also lengthened the electric lead to the illuminating light for the gun sight reticle because when the gun was moved up or down or left to right, sometimes this lead would get pinched and the light for the gun sight reticle would fail. The turret machine gun had a couple issues. They needed to relocate the spent cartridge tube so it would not get crushed when the main gun moved. The foot pedal for firing the machine gun was also repositioned so that it wasn't too close to the main gun foot pedal, reducing an accidental discharge of the main gun when trying to fire the machine gun. The turret hatches themselves needed a hinge strengthening regimen. They installed a retaining catch on the very heavy escape hatch so it could be opened and remain open while the crew evacuates from the tank. The commander's seat was moved further back so that it wasn't in the way of the main gun when it elevated. They also relocated the box for the earphones and tool storage for ease of access. There was also a repositioning of the azimuth indicator beside the gunner so that it does not interfere with traversing and the elevation handwheel. A couple miscellaneous things. They reinforced the turret platform, which are the floors of the turret, reworked the submersion seals in the turret ring and gun mantlet, so that they don't leak while underwater, modified connections to the slip ring contact that provides electricity to the turret. So again, while traversing, the electric motor does not cut out. Finally, the mechanics welded a siding vane on the turret roof. By July of 1943, most of the refitting and modifications had been made. However, plenty of Panthers stationed at Grafenvor were still missing modifications that had been approved by Waproof 6. Most of them were minor offenses, like 10 Panthers missing the stop on the commander's cupola needed for the anti-aircraft gun mount, or 13 Panthers missing the sighting vane on the turret roof. This did not stop Speer from admonishing the firm's responsible in an assertive letter on August 24th of 1943. With all of these modifications and issues being resolved, the troops themselves still had some tinkering to do. These were unauthorized modifications, However, many were quite popular, and you will see them in photographs throughout the war, such as hanging of track links on the turret sides, hanging spare road wheels on the turret or hull sides, welding a handle onto the outside of the emergency hatch, mounting sheet metal boxes on the rear deck to hold personal items and gear, removing the gun cleaning rod container, which is the long cylindrical tube that hangs on the left side of production panthers. I don't want to say it's iconic, but it is recognizable in most photos of the Panther. Troops then removed this tube and repositioned it along the end of the rear deck. Well, we've made it through the teething problems. <laughs> okay, not really. Because teething problems make it sound like they were worked out and fixed. Remember, it's been about six months. Even Albert Speer noted that the Panzer III once it started coming off of the production line, took nearly two and a half years before Waproof 6, N6, and the Panzer Troopen themselves were satisfied with the new Panzers. The Tiger, as well, was full of deficiencies during the early Aufsverung H days, and so on. However quick it did take the Panther to become battle-ready is debatable upon its alleged success. 
due in large part to the fact that, so far, the Panther had not really been subjected to any sort of combat operations. This whole project and experiment has taken place in a relative vacuum, with only some of the practical knowledge being learned from driving around at Grafenvor and Falkensee. The real test lies ahead in the ways of Unternehmen's Zitadel, or Operation Citadel. I apologize if the interchanging of German and English is off-putting or maybe confusing or whatever, but I have been reading a lot of these original documents in German, and I think it's important to hear the names in their original language, regardless of how poor my accent is, as well as, you know, a rough or literal translation to follow, so that if you ever happen to hear something in passing, you might be able to better identify it. I do want to give a bit of background before we jump right into Operation Citadel, so please bear with me. After the German 6th Army was encircled at Stalingrad, the Red Army launched a series of broad, front-sized attacks against Army Group South in hopes of relieving any pressure or attempts to break through and save what little they could of Paulus's ill-fated 6th Army. Beginning in January of 1943, the Red Army launched Operation Star and Operation Gallup to break the German defensive lines and recapture the cities of Kharkov, Belgorod, Kursk, Voroshevograd, and Itzium. For the most part, German Field Marshal Erich von Manstein's strategy of allowing the Red Army to retake these towns and advance as far as they could, overstretching themselves in the meantime, was beginning to bear fruit when on February 19th, von Manstein put in motion his very own counteroffensive to retake the area around Kharkov, and by mid-March would ultimately reclaim the city proper, dispatching the Red Army to reorganize and stiffen their resolve. On another tangent, everyone speaks of General Winter when discussing operations in the Soviet Union, or Russia before that, and while I do not wish to downplay how bitterly cold and horrible the winters in Russia might be, and by all accounts they can be downright oppressive. Nevertheless, there are two seasons in the East that go by the name of Rasputitsa, which follows the rainy season in autumn and secedes the thaw of spring, essentially turning the unpaved roads of the Soviet Union, which were more plentiful than paved roads by a long shot, into literal quagmires which swallow up transport vehicles, they muck up tank tracks, it causes horses and draft animals of any kind to get injured or become otherwise lame and they're unable to haul their burdens, it was a literal nightmare, and it could last anywhere from 6 to 10 weeks depending on the weather. While the winter months were bitterly cold, at least the ground was frozen solid and usable as a road. Certainly, it was no autobahn or interstate highway, but frozen roads are at least traversable. Miles of mud up to your hips is not. After von Manstein retook Kharkov in March of 1943, which I would argue was the last great victory the Wehrmacht would ever see, spoiler alert, though historians like Robert Satino describes the victory as such, quote, not a victory at all, but a brief glimpse of victory, end quote. Hitler, being the knobhead that he was, had but two decisions in front of him. He could allow von Manstein to prepare for the forthcoming and inevitable Soviet summer offensive, by running back his Kharkov counteroffensive strategy by way of a withdrawal towards the Dnieper River. He would prepare defensive positions which were more favorable to German forces, and speaking of von Manstein's strategy, Hitler was furious with his general for having pulled back as he had done prior to the Third Battle of Kharkov, which was the supposed last victory. Hitler himself felt that any sort of withdrawal was a sign of weakness and fallibility. 
It's not like the Sixth Army was quite literally obliterated for this exact type of thinking or anything. The other option was for Hitler to preserve the front, along with it, his hubris and ego. To do this, he would prepare for an all-out German offensive into the Kursk salient and attempt a double envelopment of Soviet forces there. We don't need historians to tell us that Hitler would undoubtedly be taking the latter of these two options. I know you're probably wondering, where does the Panther fit into all of this? And why are you telling a story that folks like Dan Carlin, Wesley Livesey, or Ray Harris Jr. have done so well in their own podcast? Well, the Panther fits in right about here. The preparation for Germany's renewed summer of 43 offensive. The Soviet front line had pushed out in a sort of bulge, or salient, between Belgorod to the south, Orel to the north, Krenvo to the west, and Kursk occupying the middle of this bulge. Army Group Center, led by Modal's 9th Army, would head up the northern pincer, while Army Group South, led by Hoth's 4th Panzer Army, would lead the southern flank. The idea being to envelop this massive area and eliminate several Soviet armies led by Deputy Supreme Commander Georgi Zhukov, one of, if not the best general in the Soviet Union, and probably outside of it as well for that matter. He might sit well above most generals at the time of any army, any time, and anywhere. We can argue about that later. Email me at thepanzerpodcast at gmail.com if you really can't contain yourself. The problem with even the idea of this offensive was that, and I want to paraphrase Dan Carlin right here, if anyone were to be handed a map of the front lines in 1943 and you were told to identify where an attack would take place, nine out of ten times you'd probably choose this exact point. It was a mighty delicious looking place for a double envelopment. If you and I can identify it, the Soviets were also quite aware of the salient and knew better now in 1943 than they had in 42 or 41 as to where the German thrust would be. Soviet intelligence in these matters was also much better than it had been before. Thanks in a large part due to the British intelligence network, the Lucy spy ring comprising of several high-ranking German military officials and civilians, like General Erich Felgiebel, a chief of staff to the head of the German Abwehr, or military intelligence, and the Tunney intercepts, which basically the British had broken the German Lorenz cipher and were actively reading German communications, allowing them unfettered access to German troop buildup and movements all over Europe, including the buildup to Operation Citadel. The Soviets were well aware months in advance of the offensive that would take place in the beginning of May of 1943. The Panther tank if you'll recall, was not ready in any large numbers by May of 1943, with many of the newly minted Panther D tanks still being retrofitted at Falkensee and would not be ready until June by the earliest. And even then, several modifications were not completed until well after the Battle of Kursk had ended. Though we're not there just yet, the availability, or rather the lack thereof, would postpone the operation further and further. Despite the protest of his ministers and generals, Hitler demanded that an offensive be ready by June of 1943. Well, June quickly came about, and the preparations for the offensive were still incomplete, and Hitler's ministers once again attempted to stall for more time, or probably, realistically, they were trying to convince Hitler to abandon the offensive altogether 
and proceed with a von Manstein-type plan of strategic withdrawal to wait out the Soviets' forthcoming offensive. According to author Earl Zimke, in his book Stalingrad to Berlin, The German Defeat in the East, he asserts, quote, On June 18, the OKW operations staff submitted a proposal that Operation Citadel be abandoned and that all troops that could be spared should be deployed into strategic reserves for the defense of Italy and the Balkans, as well as Germany proper. On the same day, Hitler responded that he fully appreciated the general staff's view, but had decided to go ahead. Two days later, he set the time for the 5th of July. End quote. All of this back and forth with his staff and ministers did nothing but allow the Soviet Union more time to prepare and strengthen their defense in depth which included miles of trench networks, acres of barbed wire, whole fields of landmines, camouflaged anti-tank gun emplacements, dug-in bunkers, interlocking fields of fire, numerous choke points, and vast tank ditches. You name it, and the Soviets had it in spades. The preparation for their defenses were to be immeasurably and utterly defiant of what the Wehrmacht would throw against it. The Panthers' debut was now set in stone for July 5th, 1943, and that's where we'll leave off for the next episode. Okay, no, I'm sorry, I'm kidding. We're going to get at it and see how the new Wunderwaffe would fare against a competent and indefatigable defense. According to the, and I'm going to murder this, the Kriegstark Nachtweisung, or KSTN, KSTAN, as I will call it, the German equivalent to what the U.S. Army calls the Table of Organization and Equipment, or you may have heard this term, the T-O-N-E. Essentially, it was a document which contains the composition of manpower and equipment of a particular unit, or rather, a type of unit. The equipment listed only specified as much as was needed to identify their use. It did not differentiate between things like an MG-34 or an MG-42, simply instead that the unit ought to have four machine guns in the section. For cars and trucks, it listed weight class such as light, medium, or heavy, cross-country capabilities, did it have it or did it not, and finally, cargo trucks and their tonnage capacity. For things like prime movers and armored vehicles, they were referred to by their type and variant, but not by the Osferung. We shall concern ourselves with a few specific K-stands. K-Stan 1150A, dated 10 January of 1943, the Stabs Company Panzer Abteilung Panther. A Stabs Company, or Staff Company, contained the Aufklärungszug, the recon section with five Panthers, the Nachtrichtenzug, the signal communications section with three Panthers, two of which were Panzerbefehlswagen, or Panzerbefehlswagen, or Command Tank with high-powered radio sets. The K-Stan 1177, dated 10 January 1943, the Mittlerer Panzer Company, or Panther, Mittlerer Panzer Company, or Medium Tank Company, with two Panthers in the command section and four Zeuge, or platoons, of five Panthers in each, totaling 22 Panthers per company. Finally, we have the K-Stan 1185, a, dated 10 January 1943, which was the Panzerwerkstattzug for the Panther, which was the Panther Repair Company attached to the Abteilung or Battalion, 
which would include the heavy prime movers and repair equipment and all of their personnel, which came out to 230 men, 7 cars, 45 trucks, 6 motorcycles, and 14 half-tracked recovery vehicles, or heavy prime movers, known as the SDKFZ-9, or FAMO. In the next episode, I will be discussing the repair system for the armored vehicles in the Panzerwaffe, as well as breaking down the vehicles required to recover and repair the big cats. Quite interesting, I promise. All of this is to say that on January 9th of 1943, 2nd Abteilung, Panzer Regiment 33, was renamed Panzer Abteilung 51, which was organized in accordance with the K-Stand above, K-Stand 1177, which amounts to a total of 96 Panther tanks and approximately 750 to 1,250 men per Ab Tylong. With attached units varying in size, there was no hmm, set-in-stone number. The K-Stand focuses mostly on the equipment. Though personnel figures were important, they were more fluid. Panzer Ab Tylong 51, along with a newly created unit on February 6th of 1943, Panzer Ab Tylong 52, which was created from the 1st Ab Tylong Panzer Regiment, 15. These constituted the first two Panzer, or excuse me, Panther Abteilungen. These were the initial combat units fitted with the new Panther tanks, though many more Panzer Abteilungen would begin converting or replacing their current loadout with the new Panthers as they became available, or so goes the plan. Training began as early as January of 1943 with what few working Panthers were available. Just a reminder though, that during this period, the retrofitting and modifications of the new Panthers took precedence over training, and during May of 1943, 96 of the modified Panthers were ready and shipped to Panzer Abteilung 51, replacing their training vehicles, and later in the month, another 96 were sent to Panzer Abteilung 52, also replacing their training vehicles, which still needed to go back and receive their modifications before being ready for the front lines. Further strains on their ability to train was the additional modification program happening at Grafenvor to correct the defects the Falcon Sea rebuild program did not. Tactical training at the Abteilung, or battalion level, failed to keep up with the standards of the day as the Panzertruppen themselves helped with the modifications. This would prove to be another one of the various Achilles heels in the Panthers' initial deployment, and in many ways would bedevil the Panthers' service life throughout the war. During the last week in June of 1943, the 200 Panthers, 96 in each Abteilung or battalion, along with the 8 in the Stabs Company or the HQ unit, additionally, 4 Berga Panthers that were to take part in Operation Citadel were loaded and transported by rail to the Eastern Front under command of Major von Lauschert. Panzer Regiment 39 or Panzer Regiment von Lauschert was assigned to the 48th Panzer Corps of the 4th Panzer Army, which was under Heeresgruppe Sud, or Army Group South. From July 2nd through to the 4th, Panzer Regiment 39, or Panzer Regiment von Lauschert, arrived and advanced to their staging areas, losing two Panthers to engine fires during the disembarkation process at the rail station, and a further 14 Panthers to engine, final drive, and transmission issues further reducing the combat-ready Panthers from 200 to now 184. A quick aside, 
Remember the training deficiencies we spoke of? It had become abundantly clear that the units had not conducted any training as a full-sized abtilon, meaning large maneuvers and combat positioning in such a large formation had not even been practiced once. Small unit tactics and the like had only really been achievable in the classroom as there were not nearly enough Panthers available to do proper simulated maneuvers at Grafenvor prior to deployment. Not to mention the radio equipment had not been tested properly between units or tested at all for that matter. Furthermore, no such trials would be possible as the staging areas were far too close to the Soviet lines. Interception and interference would be guaranteed by the enemy and therefore radio silence was paramount. On the morning of July 5, 1943, the long-awaited beginning of Operation Citadel, Panzer Regiment 39 was attached to the Panzer Grenadier Division, Gross Deutschland. The ground before Panzer Regiment von Lauschert was a vast plain, a common sight in the Russian steppe, broken up by valleys, small wooded areas, and villages scattered about in no particular order. Further crossed by various streams and rivers, the largest being the River Pena, itself a tributary of the Pisel River, which was a tributary of the Dnieper. The River Pena was fast-flowing and jutted between steep ravines, creating obstacles for the attacking force. The area in which the Panthers would have to advance was dotted with tall stalks of corn in large fields, which were crisscrossed by sandy paths that constitute a sort of road network, which obviously became impassable when it rained, just like everything else in the Soviet Union. The advance to the north would also be at an incline, favoring the defenders who held the high ground. This was not favorable terrain for a Panzer advance, or any advance for that matter, but as my best friend would say, them's the breaks. If I had a soundboard, this is probably where I would do the drum roll or maybe a reggae horn. Instead, at 0400 hours on July 5th of 1943, the German attack commenced like they always did, with a huge artillery bombardment on the Soviet positions lasting two whole hours, which is in my mind akin to the Great War style of bombardments lasting hours upon hours. I would highly recommend the book Poilu by Louis Bartas, a French soldier who, at the time in World War I, his descriptions of surviving such artillery bombardments will leave you bewildered and giving thanks for not having to have lived through such unimaginable horrors. So, that aside gone, at 0600 hours, the 48th Panzer Corps commenced their advance north, running up against obstacles almost immediately. Air superiority, the one thing the Luftwaffe was still good for, was being locally achieved. However, the onslaught of Soviet air power was staggering. The Soviets benefited largely from having nearly unlimited airframes held in reserve to replace any losses, a luxury the Luftwaffe surely did not have, which in turn did not allow the Ju-87 Stukas, which were now equipped with 37mm board cannon under wing for the sole purpose of close air support, to conduct their missions without losses and interception from enemy aircraft. The Stukas were essentially floating targets without air superiority. I should note here that although air superiority was achieved for the most part in the southern sector, the 8th Air Corps was primarily tasked with supporting the 2nd SS Panzer Corps, and thus the 48th Panzer Corps would need to rely on their new Panther tanks to create the breakthroughs needed for success. Anti-Tank Ditches a trench which is both wide enough and deep enough to prevent a tank from crossing, think 12 feet wide 
and six feet deep at least. These ditches, along with deep minefields, barbed wire obstacles, and ravines that had been flooded, not to mention the roads which were completely mined to hell, presented a horrible problem in the face of the advancing Panther units. Despite all the mechanical failures and the man-made obstacles, there was still one nearly impenetrable and indefatigable obstacle, mud. Specifically, the muddy bottom of a stream running south by southeast of the village Butovo. This stream, which could not be avoided and was becoming increasingly problematic for the Panthers, all but halted the advance. On top of this, another undiscovered minefield was found by way of advancing Panthers getting their tracks blown up. Once immobilized, Russian anti-tank fire could lay their sights on the Panthers and cut them into Swiss cheese. Generally speaking, minefields which were not identified by reconnaissance or engineers were found by a tank just wandering into them. And according to Wolfgang Schneider in his book Panzer Tactics, quote, Once a tank has entered a minefield, it is of utmost importance to prevent further units from doing the same. If enemy anti-tank defenses open fire on any disabled tanks, return fire must commence immediately, and, if available, the vehicle should lay down a smokescreen. If it is not possible to avoid the obstacle, engineers must clear lanes while other tanks provide support from covered positions. End quote. By 0645, the Panthers having advanced rather slowly, were not in the position they were meant to be, but rather they were assembled in a depression north of Moskinoya. And again, if you thought my German was bad, wait till you hear me pronounce these Russian cities. While waiting for the Panzer Regiment of Grossdeutschland to cross the ravine in Berezov, at 0730 hours, at least that was the plan. However, the marshlands in front of Grossdeutschland continued to slow their advance, and by 0700, reports forwarded to the Panthers in waiting was not favorable. Grossdeutschland armored units were becoming bogged down by minefields and enemy artillery. A fun little fact, more tanks were killed by artillery than by other tanks. At 0800, the 160 Panthers, still operational, took up the advance towards Berezov, crossing the railway, and after a Tiger tank suffered a breakdown at this crossing, Soviet aircraft came and attacked the very bunched up and very stuck armored forces. By 1000 hours, Panzer Regiment Grossdeutschland had advanced through this ravine, moving the disabled Tiger, and by 1200, a full Abteilung of Panzers from Grossdeutschland were now advancing towards one of their objectives, Hill 210, but not a single one of them was a Panther. I have a quote here regarding Panzer Abteilung 51 by Graffiter Werner Kriegel. Quote, In the afternoon of July 5th, Panzer Abteilung 51 had only 22 Panther tanks in service. Around 28 were totally destroyed, the rest damaged. My colleagues complained about the final drive and overheating their engines. End quote. This means, of the 80 or so Panthers that kicked off the attack in the morning with Abteilung 51, in less than 12 hours was now down to 22 operational Panthers. What about Panzer Abteilung 52? Well, they were not faring much better, losing almost 30 of their Panthers before clearing the first defensive line of the Soviets. Total losses for Panzer Regiment Grossdeutschland, including the Panther Abteilungen, amounted to 249 armored fighting vehicle lost, 131 of those to mines alone. This concludes the actions for the first day of Zitadel. Over the night of July 5th through July 6th, it was fairly quiet for Panzer Regiment von Laschert. 
with the crews getting some rest and recovering some of the previously damaged Panthers. The regiment had, according to the operations officer, 166 operational Panthers, 32 in need of repair, and 4 total write-offs. If you're doing the math, that equals 202 Panthers, which isn't possible as only 200 were ever sent east at this point, and only 184 were available to commence with the attack. However, it was noted by Oberst Decker, commander of the Stab Panzer Brigade 10, that this number did not accurately reflect the readiness of the Panthers at Kursk on July 6th. With how hectic the battlefield was, it is entirely possible that these operational numbers were inaccurate. What is made abundantly clear by the after-action reports is that the Panthers were used in almost the exact opposite way in which they were intended to be used. At 0430, grenadiers from the 3rd Regiment of Großdeutschland took their objectives to west of Cherkasko. I am so bad at Russian, I apologize profusely, armored elements of which managed to cross the ravine to the north of Berezov and regrouped near Zharki. Awaiting the Panthers to resume the advance, the Panthers, whom had just failed to storm Hill 232.4, fell back near Zharki and regrouped with the Panzer Grenadiers. At 0715, Panthers approaching along the road northeast of Batovo were halted due to minefields and would have to wait until pioneers, or engineers, from the 11th Panzer Division and Gross Deutschland to clear the road by hand allowing the Panthers to pass through. This delay would last until 0830, and by mid-afternoon, the Panzer Regiment of Großdeutschland had failed to capture Soviet positions near Dubrovka, and would not capture the eastern suburbs until 2100 hours, suffering quite a few casualties in the process. Panzer Regiment 39, the two Panther Abteilungen, were set to hold the flank against Soviet counterattacks along the river Penya, and did so through the night, while remaining parts of the Gross Deutschland Division would secure bridgeheads north of the River Pena and Lushi. Total losses for Gross Deutschland were 278, of which 69 were mine-related. Command of the brigade, Panzer Regiment Gross Deutschland and Panzer Regiment 39, was transferred to Oberst Schrockwitz, the Panzer Lowe, or Tank Lion, also known as the Panzer Graf, or Panzer Count. The following day, July 7th of 1943, at 0600 hours, tanks from Panzer Brigade Graf Schrakwitz pushed through the anti-tank ditches near Dubrovka. They were able to push further towards the town, and by 0630, the Soviet counterattack inflicted heavy casualties on Gross Deutschland near Dubrovka. Panzer Regiment 39, containing both Panzer Abteilungen, would help with the assault to the north. Prior to the assault, however, six more Panthers had engine fires and were knocked out before the day's assault could even begin. By 1000 hours, despite a heavy Soviet resistance, especially from their 76mm pack guns, their AT guns, which were dug in and so well hidden that they wreaked havoc upon the Panther units that had managed to take the heights north of Shishtevo and Dubrovka. By 1100 hours, Panzer Regiment 39 and Grenadiers from Gross Deutschland had reached the village of Gramucci, the objective of the day. But furious Soviet counterattacks inflicted heavy losses to both the Panthers and the Grenadiers. By 1600 hours, the day's combat was coming to a conclusion. The German positions had held out against the Soviet counterattacks 
but not without heavy casualties on both sides. The villages of Shustevo, Dubrovka, and Guramuchi were all ablaze and full of suffering, and by the time the operations officer received his report from Panzer Regiment 39, only 40 Panthers remained operational. By 0645 on July 8th, Grossdeutschland reported that Soviet resistance was withering, albeit the situation in Shustevo is unclear, and by 0900 hours, Panzer Regiment of Grossdeutschland was still engaged southeast of Shustevo. 1130 hours, Panther Regiment 39 was able to attack and successfully capture the machine and tractor station near the west end of Verkova. However, movement was slowed due to fire from the hills west of Verkova. Again, lots of these dug-in pack guns hitting the vulnerable flanks of the Panthers, which, by doctrine, the Panthers were meant to have units supporting their flanks, which were not supposed to be exposed to enemy fire. An oversight during Kursk, and one that was written about by some generals after the fact, which we'll get into next episode. An attack which was supposed to kick off at noon could not, due to the Grossdeutschland units still occupied fighting off counterattacks at the machine and tractor station in Vrakovia, taking considerable losses. This stalled the attempt to cross the River Pena, which was paramount to protect the flanks of the 11th Panzer Division attempting to cross the Passel River to the north. By the end of the day, Grossdeutschland, the 11th Panzer Division, and Panther Regiment 39 had suffered considerable losses. I should remind you here that the Panthers were dishing out plenty of what they were receiving, though what you won't find here are accurate kill counts and estimates, something that I will be avoiding for the most part, unless it is relevant to our narrative. I'm not really in the business of kill-to-death ratios, and just so that we're clear, kill counts are not the measure in which a tank or a war should be judged by either. However, concerning things like the 75mm cannon, which was in fact quite a reliable weapon, was dealing out tank kills as far as 2,000 to 3,000 meters to enemy T-34s. According to reports from July 8th alone, some 40 Soviet tanks were knocked out, which included tanks like the M3 Lee of Lend-Lease Nature, the T-34, and even some KV series tanks. See, I'll include some kill counts every now and again. It is unknown, or at least not known to us, how many Panthers were available after the actions of July 8th, some things will have to remain a mystery and have been lost to time. On July 9th, or the fourth day of the attack, there's not much to report. Gross Deutschland was to commence an attack at 0400 hours, but did not kick off until 0530, the Panthers following at 0800 and by 0840 had captured the northern sector of Verkovia and immediately ordered to assault Hill to 60.8. By 0900 hours, reports that the Panthers were making very little progress over open ground towards the objective due to fierce opposition from enemy T-34s. Encountering yet another large minefield and well-constructed emplacements in front of the hill continuously hampered the Panthers' advance. It is worth noting here, the main reason so many of the Soviet minefields and AT positions seemed to be a surprise to the Germans was twofold. One, the Soviets were elite camouflage artists, and I truly mean artists. Secondly, and this was a big one, a lack of recon on foot. Usually, tank commanders and infantry combat leaders would recon the ground ahead of their movement, especially for tanks. This was done to identify good ground in which to maneuver through and where to position themselves. 
The hurried nature of this offensive and the fact that the Panthers did not arrive until the day just prior to the assault, this meant that the German tanks would pay dearly for this lack of recon. By 1600 hours, the Panthers were ordered to advance north towards Kalinovka to block retreating Soviet forces, again running into stiff resistance along the way and suffering more casualties and damage. 16 operational Panthers remain. By July 10th, the Panther Regiment was a ghost of its former self, mounting only a couple of attacks as the lead element of Großdeutschland in their bid to capture yet another nameless hill feature, Hill 258.4. And as an aside, the reason these hills don't have names is because they aren't really that important, and the actual naming convention of hill features is based solely on their elevation in meters. During this engagement, Grossdeutschland's Panzer Commandant, the Panzergraf, or Panzer Count, as he was known to the troops, was the overall commander of Panzer Regiment Grossdeutschland. And as such, Panzer Regiment 39, or Panther Regiment von Lauschert, which included both Abteilung of the Panthers, were under his command. During this particular engagement, however, a group of 25 to 35 Soviet T-34s engaged a detachment of Panzers. Graf Schrockwitz, was inside of his command tank and had ordered his gunner to hold fire. Somehow, either the gunner did not hear him or thought whatever target he had lined up was more important than following the orders, fired the main cannon. Now, normally this might get the gunner into some sort of trouble with the commander for carelessly firing his weapon without orders, but this was no ordinary situation. Graf von Strockwitz had been resting or leaning his left arm on the gun breech, and when it was fired, smashed his arm, and he was immediately evacuated to a nearby field hospital. Command was then transferred to Hauptmann, or Captain, Walter von Wietersheim. By that evening, thunderstorms had turned the roads and ground into a muddy mess and slowed most of the panzers down into a defensive posture. Anticipating a Soviet counterattack, there were now 10 operational panthers by the end of July 10th, 31 of those were written off as total losses, and 131 Panthers were in the repair system, either awaiting parts or repairs or both. 40 Panthers had been repaired and were on their way back to the front. On July 11th, poor weather grounded the Luftwaffe. Continuous rain had turned the roads into absolute bogs of nightmarish proportions, and by 0600 hours, the main force of Großdeutschland had attacked according to their plan, Panther Regiment 39 pushed south from Hill 258.5 and inflicted loads of casualties on Soviet troops retreating from Berezov after being dislodged near Vukovia. At 0900, the Panthers encountered another large minefield, and by 915, the Pioneer Attachment had cleared a way through. Soviet resistance was identified west of Hill 258.5 in the Tolstoy Woods. Grossdeutschland was tasked with clearing this resistance and by 1610 that same evening, the defenders still held ground. Panthers at this time were used as bunker busters in the south. The Panthers did manage, however, to inflict heavy casualties on the Soviets' 5th, 10th, and 6th tank corps, which were operating in this sector. With the arrival of newly repaired units, the operational Panthers at the end of July 11th has now increased to 30. On July 12th, which is now a week since the battle had kicked off, at 0400 hours, Gross Deutschland units were relieved by the 3rd Panzer Division, according to plan. With the division now assembled near Novo Sole, recovering and taking a much-needed respite from combat, the units were awaiting orders to launch their attack north the following day in support of Modul's attack, which had broken down the night before. 
However, as with all war planning, the enemy always gets a vote. And on the 12th of July, the Soviet Voronezh Front launched a massive counteroffensive against the German thrust towards Kursk. The main effort of the Soviet counteroffensive was led by Rotmistrov's 5th Guards Tank Army. At 0800 hours, a Soviet artillery and Katusha rocket barrage commenced and for 30 minutes the ground in and around the area of Prokhorovka was turned into a hellscape. At 0830, Rotmistrov radioed his tankers, quote, steel, 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 end quote. This was to signal that the attack was on. At this point, five tank brigades from the 18th, 29th, and 5th Guards Tank Army, leading the assault, bore down upon the German 2nd SS Panzer Corps, who were themselves attempting to solidify their gains made in and around Prokhorovka. This, the Battle of Prokhorovka, becoming the infamous and most renowned armored battle ever to happen, which included some 300 German tanks and assault guns engaging some 700 Soviet tanks and self-propelled guns, resulting in heavy losses for the Soviets. I've read estimates the Soviet losses reached, I don't know, 300, 400 tanks and between five to 6,000 men, including killed and wounded. The SS units, on the other hand, lost their fair share of 50 to 80 tanks and nearly 1,000 men. These numbers may look fairly lopsided, but let's not forget, those 50 to 80 tanks the Germans lost were basically irreplaceable. Not to mention that the German tankers with any experience would hardly again be replaced, and this institutional manpower loss was something the Wehrmacht was grinding away at a withering rate, which would only hamper the soon-to-be-on-the-retreat army as the Eastern Front began to collapse in on Germany herself. The Soviets, on the other hand, were growing stronger every day, despite all of these casualties and all of these losses. Where does this leave our Panzer Regiment 39 with the 30 Panthers which were still operational? Well, again, I wanted to narrow the Battle of Kursk and Operation Citadel down to just what the Panthers were doing, and in doing so, I had to include lots of after-action reporting from Gross Deutschland, since they were an overall command, and thus, we have more of their reports to draw from, which include our newly minted Panther tanks. We seem to have lost some of the scope of the entire battle. This has not been an oversight on my part, since the entire battle encompassed such a large number of men and material it would be impossible for me to give enough time for each action. Something like 2.6 million men and 10,000 armored fighting vehicles and 30,000 artillery pieces took part in the battle, not to mention the 5,000 or so aircraft involved a 2,000-kilometer front, or 1,200-mile front. It was a massive battle that lasted just a little over a month. So let's zoom back in a little bit and see just how Panzer Regiment 39 was faring during the climactic episode. In the sector of 48th Panzer Corps, the 3rd Soviet Mechanized Corps and the 31st Tank Corps smashed into the 3rd Panzer Division near Nova Soleil, while further south, the 10th Tank Corps and the 204th and 309th Rifle Divisions attacked southwest near Kalinovka. This attack forced units of Großdeutschland to defend rather than take part in any sort of attack near the Obeyan Road. At this point, the Panzer regiments were sent to bolster the defense near Hill 258.5 around Verkovia. During heavy fighting lasting most of the afternoon, the Panthers and the rest of the Gross Deutschland Panzer Regiment were able to inflict heavy casualties against the Soviet counteroffensive. At 2000 hours, the Regiment of Panthers launched their counterattack against Hill 258.5, retaking it by 2100 hours. After the fighting had eased up and the Soviet assault blunted, 
Gross Deutschland had held its ground and plugged the gap created at Kalinovka. The units regrouped during the night and prepared for the planned attack on July 13th the following day. 25 Panthers remained operational. On July 13th of 1943, both commanders of German Army Group Center and Army Group South, von Kluge and von Manstein, were both summoned to a meeting with Hitler the night before in Rastenburg, East Prussia, to discuss the battle plan moving forward. The Western Allies had landed in Sicily on July 9th, and Hitler had begun the talks of withdrawing several units from the east to reinforce the southern sector of Italy from the Allied invasion. Von Kluge was in agreement with Hitler, as the Soviets were amassing troops for another counteroffensive to the north. But contrary to this, von Manstein was adamant that his forces, having spent a week fighting through a labyrinth of Soviet defense, was sure that his southern flank was poised for a breakthrough. Quote, On no account should we let go of the enemy until the mobile reserves he committed are completely beaten. End quote. Hitler wavered, and on this occasion he compromised with his field marshal, allowing the southern sector to remain on the offensive, but ordered that von Manstein's reserve 24th Panzer Corps was to move south immediately in support of the 1st Panzer Army. Well, what does this mean for the Panthers of Panzer Regiment 39? Well, they were given orders to continue the defense around Hill 258.5, engaging advancing Soviet tanks and AT guns in the woods to the west, while infantry and tank units of Grossdeutschland were to advance towards these Tolstoy woods, which had become a Soviet staging area for the next counterattack. At 1000 hours, 3rd Panzer Division once again requested that Grossdeutschland cut off the enemy's approach near Berezov. However, the enemy forces still occupying Tolstoy Woods cut short any hopes that the Germans had of advancing further north. Moving the panzers of Grossdeutschland towards Berezov to support the 332nd Infantry Division at 1200 hours to prepare for another supposed attack, which never materialized, turned into a three hour long resupply and refitting process. Oberst Decker, the CO of the battalion, stated that his units would be unable to move until 1600 hours. 1600 hours came and went, and the Panthers of Panzer Regiment 39 finally began to arrive at Berezov. At the request of the 332nd Infantry Division, which had fallen under Soviet attack in the town, these Panthers would arrive late, as the attack had been repulsed. However, the rain and subsequent mud forced the Panthers to become bogged down and essentially stopped any sort of counterattack that they may have supported. By that evening, Panzers from Grossdeutschland, including those of Panzer Regiment 39, our Panthers, had yet to commence its recapture of Berezov, and according to Oberst Decker, would not be ready until long after 1930 hours. The Corps commanders finally canceled any plans for an attack on the 13th, ordering instead that all efforts be made to attack the following day. 43 Panthers were now operational. Now, I understand that the names of these hills, like Hill 258.5, Hill 233.3, or 240.2, and towns like Berezov, Verkovia, Novosole, Surstevo, and Dubrovka, all of these seem to be recurring in these timelines, and it almost sounds like nobody is retreating or advancing, there's just a ton of fighting in these areas. That's because the ferocity of these battles these landmarks, uh, which by the end would just become crater-pocked moonscapes filled with burning tanks and thousands of corpses. Well, that was the nature of the Eastern Front in 1943. And on this day, July 14th, the Germans would advance, capture a hill, and the next hour the Soviets would counterattack and push them off of the hill. But not entirely. And then another round of attack 
counterattack would take place, almost like clockwork. The whole time, the grindstone is just turning and churning out more corpses and burnt-out tanks and wasted material, for nothing more than some height on a map or a village dotted across the landscape. During the day, the brigade slowed down due to flanking fire from the woods south of Hill 233.3, which Panzer Regiment 39 requested Stuka attacks upon, and by 0550 hours, dive bombers were dropping their ordnance in the woods with devastating effectiveness. By 0600, the lead Panthers finally approached Hill 233.3, and by 0720, had recaptured the hill and were engaging Soviet tanks and artillery to the north. The brigade was halted, allowing the infantry support to finally catch up. By 8.15, the Grossdeutschland Panzer Brigade was requesting Luftwaffe support on the Tolstoy Woods. Following this air raid, the Soviets withdrew from the woods, leaving a screening force of T-34s and AT guns to harass the Panzers still engaged on Hill 233.3. This is where the Panthers would be for the remainder of the day, engaged between the ridgeline on the hill and the Tolstoy Woods which were still held by enemy ground forces. However, during the night, the Panthers of the Panzer Regiment 39 were forced to withdraw due to a lack of ammunition and petrol, creating a gap in the Tolstoy Woods encirclement, allowing the Soviets trapped there to attempt a breakout. By the end of the day on July 14th, 36 Panthers remained operational. On July 15th, the 10th day of the battle, Panzer Regiment 39, which contained both Panzer Abteilungen 51 and 52, was essentially part of the withdrawal away from Kursk, as the battle itself was starting to wind down, so I will briefly comment on the day's activities of the other units of Grossdeutschland, which the regiment was still attached to at this point. By 0730, recon elements found that the Tolstoy Woods were free of Soviets. Following the Panther withdrawal the night before, elements within those woods were able to break out of the encirclement. By 1030, Grossdeutschland was ordered to strengthen their defensive positions in order to turn them over to the 3rd Panzer Division. Despite most of the day being quiet, parts of Grossdeutschland Panzer Battalion engaged enemy armor north of the Tolstoy Woods, destroying 16 Soviet tanks. At 1900 hours, Grossdeutschland was ordered to withdraw after being relieved by 3rd Panzer Division to the area of Srstevo and Luchi. The division planned to move Panzer Regiment 39 back to Berezov, since High Command had essentially ended Operation Citadel, they would continue the withdrawal with the rest of the division. By the end of the day, 20 Panthers remained operational. From July 16th through the 18th, OKH, Oberkommando des Heeres, literally Upper Command of the Army or High Command of the Army, had ordered that the remaining Panthers in Panzer Abteilung 51 be transferred to Panzer Abteilung 52 while Panzer Abteilung 51 would be rested and refitted in the coming days with 96 refurbished Panthers to replace all of those losses absorbed during Unternehmen Zitadel or Operation Citadel. Operational Panthers on July 16th were 43, and on the 17th, 44. By the evening of July 18th, however, the following breakdown of Panzer Regiment 39's Panthers were as follows. Panzer Abteilung 51 still had 33 operational Panthers, 32 were in the repair workshops, and 31 were total losses. Panther Abteilung 52 had 28 operational Panthers remaining, 40 were in the repair workshop, and 24 were total losses. The following day, July 20th, the status of the 200 original Panthers were as follows. 41 Panthers were still operational, 
or 20% of the starting force. 85 Panthers were in short or long-term repairs at the regimental maintenance units, which was 42% of the starting force. 16 Panthers were damaged so badly they needed to be returned to Germany so that the ordnance depots could do their major overhaul and fix these just badly damaged tanks, which amounts to about 8% of the starting force, which in total means 50% of all of the Panthers sent into battle were damaged after only two weeks of fighting. 56 Panthers had been burnt out. Of these, 49 were filled with explosives and blown up by the crews themselves. Seven Panthers that had burnt out but could not be blown up fell into Soviet hands on July 19th, which by August of 1943 would be on display in Moscow. This makes up about 29% of the original 200 which did include the two Panthers that burned out with motor fires before the campaign even began. There was an additional 12 Panthers, which were en route. They were accounted for, but had yet to arrive. Well, there we have it. We've survived Kursk. Unlike so many of our storied Panther tanks, we have made it to the other side. After two weeks of fighting in the Kursk salient, the regiment will get some respite, but I would like to remind the listener that there is some argument to be made that even though the Battle of Kursk was over, it wasn't really over. The front was still engaged in daily combat and sorties, but the massive German offensive was over. In some circles, it could be argued that the Battle of Kursk lasted well into August and beyond, but for the sake of our narrative, we'll cut it off here, after the main offensive and the baptism of fire for the Panther Alfs D. Next time on the Panzer Podcast, I want to discuss the success and failures of the Panther tank during Operation Citadel and dive into what troops and commanders thought of the new tank, as well as go into detail of exactly how the Panzers were repaired, what that network looked like, and how effectively it worked. If we have time, and I think we will, I'd like to crack open the Burga Panther for us to better understand the recovery aspect of the repair network, along with the heavy prime mover, the SDKFZ-9, the FAMO, which was a large half-tracked vehicle used to recover German panzers, a rather important part of the repair network. All right, folks, thanks for tuning in to this iteration of our story. We've still got plenty more to cover before we finally close the books on the Panther. If you do like the podcast, do us a favor and drop us a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever possible. I appreciate any and all feedback, and it does help grow the show. If you would like to reach out to me via email, you can do so at thepanzerpodcast at gmail.com. Once again, that's thepanzerpodcast at gmail.com. I am also on Twitter at thepanzerpod. I misspoke last episode and gave the wrong handle. So again, the Twitter handle is at thepanzerpod. I am now also on Instagram at thepanzerpodcast. I'm using both of these social media tools generally to just promote the episodes when they drop. And as such, every two weeks, I'll have a new post, uh, usually on Sundays, to announce when the podcast is available. I was thinking I might include a couple of period photographs to coincide with the episode so that my listeners can get a visual of what we're talking about. I'm trying to gather up some of these gram-worthy panzer photos, so we'll, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Until next time, I'm John Burgess, so thanks for listening. Mir geht's gut, ich bin froh und ich sag dir auch wieso, weil du mich gut verstehst. Als mein guter Kamerad mit mir durchs Leben geht. Ich will Freude und auch Leid mit dir teilen. Ohne dich fang ich gar nicht mehr an. 
Hier geht's oben, ich bin froh und ich sag dir auch wieso, weil ich dein Freund sein kann.